Hello, everybody. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, we feature musicians, photographers, poets, journalists, and other San Franciscans talking about living, working, and doing their thing here. It's a way to get to know your neighbors. Welcome to episode 31. This podcast is going to be a little bit different. As you might remember, back in April, we were part of the Reimagine End of Life series of events in San Francisco and the Bay Area. Our event was called Working with Death, and one of our storytellers that night was Mason Jay. I found Mason thanks to episode 19 storyteller Randy Burns. Randy found Mason through the work he's doing with San Francisco Public Library's James C. Hormel LGBTQIA Center, where Mason works. Here's Mason. Hi there, um, my name is Mason Jay. I'm going to be reading a few poems for you tonight. And then just kind of storytelling about kind of my experiences with death um, from a very early age to today, even. Um, so yeah, just for some context, because I like to give context before I share most of my work. Um, these three poems are some parts of a, like a book I'm actually writing. Um, about kind of growing up here, and it's called How to Survive, um, just like How to Survive. I can't figure out what I want the end of the title to be because it's like I've survived so much at this point that I don't think I could prioritize one thing I've survived over anything else. Um, so this is an excerpt, kind of the intro to the book, um, some of the poems that will be in it, and then I'll kind of talk about what led to the work behind this. It is the end of the 70s, and though I will not be born for another 10 years, my life will be saved by empowered women of color and black sissies. Shortly after Harvey Milk's election, Frisco's first plagues make their debut and begin claiming the lives of city dwellers via Jonestown, hippies, and gentrification 1.0. In a post-black and brown power movement and pre-AZT or needle exchange haze, San Franciscans are desperately trying to adjust. Murmurs of a gay cancer strike the Castro and south of Market. The Agricultural Labor Relations Act has passed, and post-Vietnam clouds hang thick in the air of the Bay Area. By the late 80s, 1988, when I am born, crack and heroin have begun to ravage SF. I'm born in the Valencia Gardens on April 20th, high on a speedball and weighing just under four pounds. I spend the first few weeks of my life detoxing in the NICU before being sent home with a warning that I will probably not live to be over a month old. Friday, I turn 30, and not much has changed. If anything, things look more similar now. So this first piece is called um, Dementia Pan Tomb. The alternate title is All of My Uncles Are Dead. And it's a poem I wrote when I first started to actually think about the fact that my experiences with death were atypical. Death has been a part of my life since before before I could read or write, before I could even walk. Um, my mom lost an infant to SIDS when I was about a year and a half old, and I was very much so a part of that grieving process. And even though I'm almost 30, I still have memories of like my first funeral. And um, because of my mom's experience with that and raising me and adopting me as like a drug-addicted baby, um, she started working with AIDS patients in the late 80s and into the late 90s even. Um, and so a lot of that kind of was just normal in my life. And so 
I wrote this piece, it's a pantoum, which is a specific like kind of poetry form where the lines are repetitious. And it's called the dementia pantoum because it's kind of like my way of unpacking the really nonsensical conversations I had with men as a literal child and thinking they were like hilarious, but not actually realizing that I was speaking as someone in like late stage dementia. So this is called All of My Uncles Are Dead. Dozing with all of my uncles are dead. Dozing with visions of William Shatner's corpse under their beds. Dementia has twisted each of their lives into fever dreamt surrealities, made them forget friends, lovers, and five-year-old me. Dozing with visions of William Shatner's corpse under their beds, tangled in dryer sheet thin blankets, reacting to experimental AZT meds, made them forget friends, lovers, and five-year-old me as I sat next to their hospice beds reading kids' books about grief, tangled in dryer sheet-thin blankets reacting to experimental AZT meds. Dementia has twisted each of their lives into fever dreams, surrealities. As I sit next to their hospice beds reading kids' books about grief, all of my uncles are dead. Um, this next piece is about ghost ship. I um, personally was affected by the fire and um, during this point, like this is pretty recently, so I've come to be known as kind of like someone who people can rely on or go to when they're dealing with dead stuff or hard stuff or grief or loss. Um, I don't know why this position has been bestowed upon me. I am not exactly thrilled that it has been, but it is something that I, as like a healer and an energy worker and someone who has enough experience with this to actually hold this, have taken on. Um, so, following the ghost ship fire, which I was almost in attendance at, um, I started just logging daily what was going on and writing a lot about that and just trying to remember things because it seemed like a different type of epidemic. And when we think of epidemics, we think of like plagues or like, you know, natural disasters. We don't think about kind of the economy as an epidemic. And I feel like in my heart of hearts that the ghost ship fire is a result of the economy's epidemic and just like local spaces in the Bay Area. Um, so I wrote kind of all these things down and was just thinking about what, how do I want my friends to be remembered? How do I want this moment to be remembered? Everyone is focusing on what has gone wrong. Let's focus on what has gone right as we kind of deal with this really crushing loss, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of trying to the who, what, when, where, and why, a lot of trying to look for people, a lot of trying to figure out how to grieve when you have already been grieving other things that are going on in your life. And so this is kind of what came of that. This is a December 7th century, and it was just a pretty short poem. 36, Artful Origami forever protecting each other just as they did in life, with hugs, love, music, and community. I'd like to remember them, smiling under the stars, embracing, flirting, being tender with every beautiful thing in the galaxy forever, catching comets of sunrise in their solo cups and laughing together in nebulous rhythm. So this last piece is something that I've recently started kind of unpacking. It's um, just how early my relationship with death started. Um, most people 
have a few years to figure out what the world is before they realize what the world isn't and how we can just be here one day and gone the next. Um, I like to joke, and it's not a joke, but I like to joke because I have a dark sense of humor as a result of what I've been through, um, that at one point in my life, you know, I had more funeral clothes than playground clothes um, because it was just very common. I was going to three or four funerals a week, um, and as a result of, like, various things, you know, the gang violence that was going on in the Fillmore and the Western Edition in the early 90s, as well as in the Mission, um, you know, police impunity and brutality, killing just unarmed African-American, Latino, and Asian people. And then when I was about 15, um, actually maybe younger, 13 or 14, because it was my freshman year in high school, um, the first time violence that ever felt like it personally impacted me happened. And um, I came to school and saw a friend of mine who I had known from the Gay Street Alliance kind of crumpled against his locker. And he was, you know, like, you think I'm flaming? He was extremely flamboyant. Like, he was really out there. And so to see him not be okay was uh, was an immediate red flag for me. And I approached him and I asked him what was wrong. And he burst into tears. And he just kept saying, he, they killed her, they killed her, my friend, they killed her. And I was like, who are you talking about? And he began to tell me about how a trans woman friend of his had been murdered. And at that point, um, Brandon Tina was still kind of out of my radar because it was literally so far away from me. I was growing up here in San Francisco um, that I had known about his death, but I didn't really think about the epidemics that trans bodies face. Um, and I, I kind of got more info and just tried to pry it out of him, like what is her name? And it ended up being Gwen Araujo. And so that was my introduction to basically the literal first-hand epidemic that is still going going on as we speak right now that primarily affects trans women of color and is just they're disappearing and we think about death and we think about loss and I would be remiss to come on this stage and leave out, this conversation out of the equation because for me it was I had already been to hundreds, literally hundreds of funerals by this time in my life, but for me this was like, okay, this is something very intersectional, this is something queer, this is something a person of color, this is someone who went to the same queer youth center that I went to, this is someone who is the reason my friend is on the floor right now. How do I deal with this? And as I've been unpacking these thoughts and dealing with mortality in various ways, um, just as I lose more and more friends the older I get, it feels like kind of, I like to call a historical hiccup, a kind of, I'm just being turned around to where I started on this planet. And so this was kind of my thoughts about that. So it's called, How to Converse with the Souls of Those Who've Loved You When They Were Alive. One, open your mouth. Crack your sugar skull in a one-two eggshell split. Show the onlookers the most hurt parts of you so they ask you to come back and do it again and read it again and perform at this other thing again with no regard for the toll this re-traumatization takes on you. Resent being infamous for your pain. Enjoy the wealth of your pain. Two, at two years old, when most people are still unsure of how to walk, you will learn how to comfort your grieving mother for the first of countless losses she will endure. A bone-deep memory you find so purely that by the time your own friends start dying, when Gunnarajo's death becomes your first of many trans days of remembrance, you have already forgotten how to cry, except when you are alone with your thoughts, snorting up snotty bits of shame and murmuring of 
murmuring pleas of restorative justice into your pillow. Three, by age three, you are immune to grief because the deaths have started to come in weekly waves. At age 30, it is the same, so you decide that the AIDS war is not actually a plague of yesterday, but a long-term performance art piece curated by a cohort of legendary children, oracles, and jesters who are killing time as best they can while knowing the city won't be theirs for much longer than it is. All right, thanks. That's the end of my poetry, and I'm gonna tell you some stories now. Um, so yeah, like I was saying, I was born in 88 at the height of the crack and the AIDS epidemic. And I was born into a really normalized culture of death. Um, 10 years before I was born was around the time that Harvey Milk was elected, but it was also 1978, which was the year that Jim Jones led uh, upwards of a thousand people into French Guiana and then forced them into suicide. So that was something that had ravaged my community really heavily before I even existed. So I was already, by the time I was born 10, year, 10 years later, I was born into a culture of normalized grief, normalized loss, and just kind of these questions about how the hell does this happen? Why does this happen? And so at 88, when I was born, um, my mom had already begun caring for medically fragile infants because she realized that was the best role she could have. My mom, by nature, is an empathic healer, helper, overextender of her existence type of person. Um, so she was doing work with babies like me. Um, I mention this because Contrary to what a lot of people believe, the goal of the foster and adoptive system is reunification. Um, whether it cannot be done with a biological parent, um, they try to keep siblings together. So about seven years after I was born, we got a phone call. Um, and at this point, my mom had already begun doing work um, at Coming Home Hospice. She was becoming a death doula. She was um, volunteering at Laguna Honda. She was doing all sorts of things kind of as a satellite, like as much as you could do without getting a, like an RN certificate, um, just as a volunteer, someone who could usher people into like AIDS, AIDS afterlife. Um, so then, we got a call when I was about seven years old saying that I had a half-sibling in the system. And my mom's immediate reaction was like, okay, yeah, we'll take her. Great, why not? Um, and then the people on the other side of the phone paused and they said, well, this baby's like HIV antibody positive, so they're going to need special care. Do you know anything about HIV? Do you know this, that, and the other? And my mom was like, oh, yeah, actually, like, you know, I'm already doing this work. I'd be happy to take this child. And so what ended up happening was my sister was placed with us. When she was placed with us, um, the person, the social worker who was there to drop her off, who knew nothing of AIDS, was in nothing short of a hazmat suit and handling her like she was rancid garbage. And at this time, my sister was probably about a year and a half, maybe two years old. So like a toddler, someone who's gonna be clingy. And I remember thinking, why is this person touching her like that? Because it had always been normal for me to be around people with HIV. In fact, my first, I like to joke that my first job, because they paid me in candy and I think stickers, was I worked at the AIDS walk um, basically to show people that your, your children could 
touch people with AIDS and they wouldn't burst into flames was my job was literally to stand there and hand out hugs to anyone who was walking by or who anyone who just wanted a hug and needed love at that point. And so for me to see this grown adult, a social worker, someone who's supposed to be out serving the public, um, treat my sister like garbage was my first recognition of the fact that pe not everyone understands that she's just a baby. She's just a baby. And so we got her and we were, I have always been really into like medical stuff, like anything medical, give it to me, let me read it, let me read a chart. Um, and so I was reading through her chart and like I said, I was about eight at the time. I understood most of the words that were in there, all the medicines they were giving her. She was actually one of the guinea pigs for AZT because it had not been tested on children at that time because this was 19, I think 96. Um, and so they did not know if she would convert from being antibody positive to having a, norm, a normal and healthy immune system. She ended up converting, but there was a really long time that I was not even physically allowed near her. And I just think about it all the time because touch is so important. Like if we don't have touch, if we don't interact, I feel even though my other siblings and I are all varied ages, I feel like her and I have a different relationship and her and everyone else in our family, at least the siblings, have a different relationship because we weren't allowed to touch her. And so I guess if I were to plug anything is if death is at the front door or imminent or a chronic illness is taking someone from you, please remember that if they, if they consent to it, it is very imperative that you stay with them that you touch them, that you let them know they are still human, that regardless of whatever is ravaging like their body, that they still have humanity. Um, and so anyway, looping back, we got her, I'm reading the chart, and I see an acronym. It's DNR. Um, I don't know what that is. And so I say to my mom, what does DNR mean? And she says, what do you mean? And I said, what does DNR mean? It says DNR in here. And she says, that means do not resuscitate. And, you know, I'm, I'm seven or eight. So I'm like, what, what is, I know what resuscitate means. I know that's like CPR, because I, I knew CPR by that point. And she's like, it means that if anything, like if any harm were to, be, to befall her, that we are not allowed to revive her. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I can't give her CPR. Like, I have my card. What do you mean? I, I, can't, I can't save my sister if I want to. And they were like, she was like, no. Um, they've requested because of the status of her immune system right now that we not attempt to use life-saving measures if she should need them. And so for me, I was just like, what the fuck? This is a two-year-old. Like, how are you going to tell someone that the child they've taken home to adopt that they cannot resuscitate if they need to? And it's just because of the stigma at the time that existed around AIDS. Um, and so that has always informed my sense of how how sometimes we forget who people actually are. We see them as their symptoms. We see them as whatever's going wrong rather than what's going right. My sister now is um, 23, an opera singer, graduating with a psych degree in um, early childhood education. She's fine. But I just always think if, if we had ever listened, if anything had ever happened to her, she would not be here. She would not be the productive and amazing member of society she is today. Um, and so I do feel like that's really helpful to remember. Um, I have a little bit more to talk about. I know that was kind of a downer, but okay. Okay, okay. 
Um, so I guess I might be wrapping. Um, but let me say one more thing, um, that this is something that I want to, like if I even can have a minute to talk about it, is something I've started doing as a result of the ghost ship fire is even though I am not a notary republic, I do not know this, I have learned through my travels with death that I'm really good at filling out advanced directives. Um, so I've started a freelance service for members of the queer community in the event of incidents like ghost ship or uh, early loss of life due to mental illness or transphobic violence, that there is a community of queer folks out there who are valiantly making sure that people's end of life wishes are respected. Because before the Christopher Lee Act, which allowed transgender people to be honored as their preferred gender after death, that didn't exist. So it was really easy for your family if you were transgender to say, oh, well, we don't recognize your gender identity, so we're gonna like dress you up in a dress and have you build as a girl on your tombstone. And so the work I do now, um, it's totally freelance service, but I do it now. I fill out advanced directives for people to allow them to have their gender pr pronouns honored after death, to allow their partners to have decisions, to even specify things like they specifically don't want their organs going to police officers or the KKK. Like you can get that specific. Like that's what my advanced directive says. It says no cops will get my eyes, no KKK members will get my organs. Um, but it's legally binding contract. <laughs> like So yeah, it's in, my time with death, I learned that you can make weird specifications like that, and as long as it's signed by someone who's notarized, they are legally standing things. Um, so yeah, with that, now you've learned something new, and thank you for listening. <laughs>